I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We're in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? Our podcast is a collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at TCU and CSIS in Washington. In this first year of Donald Trump's presidency, we're talking to the reporters who are covering the president the closest. Today on the podcast, we have Ruth Marcus, an op-ed columnist for The Washington Post who specializes in American politics and domestic policy. She's also the deputy editorial page editor. She went to Yale and then went to Harvard Law School. And if I'm correct, you started writing for The Post while you were in law school. And then did you ever leave or is that the only place you've ever worked? I worked for a small legal newspaper before I went to law school, which Mm -hmm. kind of explains my detour. But the Post has been my home for uh, 33 years now. Have you ever seen anything like it? What we're doing now? Nope. And I've covered a lot of tumultuous times. I was not here for Watergate, but I was here for... Um, the Reagan administration, which was a big change in this town. I was here for the Clinton impeachment. I uh, met my husband during the Clarence Thomas hearings. So I've seen a lot of moments, but I've never experienced a, a kind of constant explosion tornado of news like we're having now. And and it's, I think those words are good because explosion and tornado connotes some scariness, and I think it's a scary time for us. Fire hose would be another Mm -hmm. metaphor that comes to mind. I mean, it's just gushing out so fast that we can't keep up with it, even those of us who get paid to keep up with it. So I woke up this morning having thought a little bit about the extraordinary New York Times interview with the president in which he essentially called on his own attorney general to resign uh, or invited him to resign wrote a column about this. And in the interim between when I wrote the column and when I arrived here, the attorney general said, thanks, but no thanks, I think I'll stay. So of course, I had to update the column. So this the fire hose gushes constantly. What do you make of this? I mean, we have had other administrations, every administration tries to shape the news. But we have never had any administration that that sought to control it the way this administration seems to be trying to do. I mean, every unflattering story, they just brand as false. So every administration finds its own way to fight with the media that covers it. I would say the press corps, but we're not just press anymore. We're Mm -hmm. multi-platform. So I think the Nixon administration is the one that was most uh, similar to this one in terms of simply trying to frame the media as enemy and taking it head on. But certainly Barack Obama tried to do his way to go around the mainstream media and had these kind of odd, I was a little bit offended by it, I have to say, interviews. He never gave an interview, by the way, to the Washington Post, President Obama, during his two terms while he was in office. He came after much beseeching uh, by me to an editorial board session 
right after, right before his inauguration, and he never again gave an interview to the Washington Post. That tells you something about their attitude towards the mainstream media and their view of how they wanted to manage it. But to get back to your question, no, the degree of hostility and just direct attack is like nothing we've ever experienced before. And we need to remind ourselves as um, Marty Barron, our executive editor, I can quote him without fear of looking like I'm sucking up because I don't work for him. Um, He says, we don't go to war, we go to work. And that's what our attitude needs to be. How are you doing it now? Are you doing it in a different way than you did before? And I want to talk later about because the Post really has taken the lead in shifting to the digital age and has done remarkable things, and you're thriving. There's no other way to look at it right now. The only newspaper, you hired, what, 60 reporters this year? Um, Well, uh, thank you, Marty Barron, because you can't have a great newspaper without a great editor at the helm of it, and the performance of the news side speaks for itself. Thank you, Jeff Bezos, for giving us the resources and the patience to see those resources really pay off. I think everybody understands they really have in this environment. Uh, Our news side has just done terrific reporting. From our point of view, on the editorial side, we need to do two things simultaneously. We need, as editorial writers and our editorial board, to treat this president the same way we would treat any president, which is to say, when he does things that we disagree with, we're going to say that. When he does things that we agree with, we're going to say that. We're not going to grade him on a curve so that if he does one teeny weeny little thing good, we'll go, oh boy, sunny day, but we're not going to treat him uh, more unfairly or use language about him that we wouldn't use about any other president just because, and you know, we were very vociferous. Fred Hyatt, the editorial page editor, wrote an unusual and very powerful column, and he was a Pulitzer finalist for the editorials that he wrote inveighing against Donald Trump and trying to uh, urge people, uh, voters, not to elect him. He wrote a full column-length editorial, quite unusual, right after the Republican convention, saying, under normal times, we would wait and assess the qualities of both candidates, but we need to tell you right now there is no way on earth that we could endorse this man. Nonetheless, every president gets judged on performance, and so we have been trying to judge on performance. So that's on the editorial side. On the op-ed side, it's a really, really interesting conundrum that we face because we have a whole bunch of columnists. I think we have the best array of op-ed columnists on the, of any newspaper I on the planet. And here's the problem. All of our columnists, pretty much to a person, dislike Donald Trump. I mean, disagree with Donald Trump. So the conservative columnists, Michael Gerson, Charles Krauthammer, George Will, are at least as apoplectic about things that President Trump is doing as are the most liberal columnists, E.J. Dion, Gene Robinson. And so that is a problem because you want to have an editorial page, an op-ed page, that reflects a diversity of views. And we live in a country, and we keep reminding ourselves of this, where 40% of voters voted for Donald Trump. And even if we don't agree with them, it's our responsibility to reflect their point of view, not in our editorial columns, but on our op-ed page, 
And it's just awfully boring for readers, I think, to be constantly forced to read yet another I hate Donald Trump and here's why I hate him today column. So we have gone out and aggressively solicited both individual pieces and regular columnists to help diversify the our ideology and our geography. So for example, we have this columnist who's been writing for us, who's the editor of one of six papers across the country who um, in, which endorsed Donald Trump. Um, this is uh, he's an editor of a newspaper in Hillsborough, Ohio. His name is Gabri- Gary Abernethy. And I called him up and said, hey, you know, you wrote this, edi- this um, editorial endorsing Donald Trump, wondering how you're feeling now. Would you like to write about it for us? So he's been filing pretty much weekly dispatches from Trump country. And I think that's a value to our readers. You know, the problem you face, I think, is the problem that all of us in journalism have faced, and that is in trying to find some way to bring balance uh, to the coverage, even on the news side. And I know some of the cables, in an effort to bring balance, in my view, have put on people who were totally unqualified, uh, who had no connection with the campaign. And I'm I'm not going to name names here, but you listen to these people, you know CNN, I know why they're doing it, and and yet the person comes on in about 20 seconds in, you understand this person has no connection whatsoever to the campaign. He's talked to nobody in the White House, and he certainly hasn't talked to a Donald Trump, and so you just wind up wasting time in an effort to to do just what, what you're trying to do. Well, I think in a sense you've understated the problem of these commentators, and you know who you are out there. Um, it's not simply that they are so peripheral that they have essentially no connection to the campaign. It's that they have – there is no – argument, no matter how intellectually dishonest, that they're unwilling to make. So I will run a well-argued Trump column. I will put pro-Trump column. Our finger is on the scale in favor of a pro-Trump column, but I will not run one that has either factual errors in it or that has an argument that is just laughable on its face. So everybody's free to disagree, but, you know, Moynihan, what what Dana Patrick Moynihan said about the facts, you're not entitled to your own facts, and you have to reach a certain level. So I believe that the pro-Trump columns that we've had have you know been at or exceeded that level, and that's what we're looking for. But I, I've gone around and talked to editors of conservative websites and conservative magazines. Everybody is out there looking for the decent pro-Trump columnists because we all feel responsible for doing it, even though, to be honest, well, you know, what you see, and you've talked about this and thought about this a lot, is this siloization, that sort of self-imposed siloization that people have. I only want to listen to the liberal podcast. I only want to read the conservative website. Well, if we turned into that on our op-ed page and on our website, because we're not just a page anymore, we would be doing ourselves and our readers a disservice, and we, you know, we can't force you to read it, but we have to offer it up to you. But it is very interesting what you're saying here, because uh, the fact is that George Will bailed early. Uh, Crowdhammer uh, was critical for a while, seemed to be coming back, but then uh, in boom. his most recent, uh, yeah. man, he really lowers the boom. And and here's the other interesting uh, thing I was thinking about as I was thinking about interviewing you. Did you ever expect 
that you would see the Wall Street Journal somehow taking maybe at times a harder line than the Washington Post has taken on a Republican president. Uh, It's pretty extraordinary. I think if I'm correct that the Wall Street Journal called for the president to fully divest of all of his, which is quite complicated. And I don't think we editorially went quite that far. Look, it is not a coincidence that the conservative political class has been pretty muted for the most part about Donald Trump, certainly since he became president. But the conservative commentariat, uh, at which the Wall Street Journal is close to the apex, has been willing to go after him when they deem it necessary because they're going to continue to be conservatives after Donald Trump has come and gone. Yeah, here here is an example uh, that caught my eye the other day uh, in, a, in a Wall Street Journal editorial. Don Jr. is a political dunce who took a meeting that went nowhere. Now, I know I would question whether the Washington Post editorial page would actually use that kind of language. It's, it was, it's pretty good language. Um, I am a really big believer in actually that the power of your argument is really stronger when you don't uh, do one of two things, when you don't use invective about people. So I'm not sure he's a political dunce is going to do anything except for make the editorial writer feel good and satisfied, but it's not going to convince anybody who disagrees with you. And it's always a bad idea, this doesn't do that, to ascribe motivation to people. So we, I try to stay away from that in my own writing. I try to counsel the columnists who will accept counseling um, to stay away from that. And I think the editorials, the, in, in the voice of the editorial board, really try to stay away from motivation also. So we fast forward to when the Times... Your competitor, I'm sure you all weren't as happy as as a lot of people were to see that interview, uh, which let me just say that. Let me interject this. The Times and the Post are making each other great newspapers right now. And a, there's nothing like a little competition. to. It's a great newspaper war, like the old-fashioned really way. And um, I'm a big believer in competition. I feel... When I wake up in the morning, what I think is what op-ed, who could write the most um, extraordinary, powerful, compelling op-ed for us today or in the days ahead? And I want to convince that person to write for us. And when I see that person on the rare occasions when it happens, go to a certain other paper, I'm somewhere between angry and sad. And that's a competitive instinct that fuels good journalism, whether it's on the news pages or Absolutely. the opinion pages. Absolutely. And and stories like this do make great reporters. I mean, you know, that's when the enrollment in journalism schools went up was during Watergate and because of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. And, and uh, that's just part of the fallout. But as I read this interview that he had, my first question was, why did he do this interview? I mean, I'm glad he did interviews. I mean, I'm I'm for politicians doing interviews, but if somebody asked me to do an interview, just like I invited you to do the podcast, the first thing I, I say to myself is, why do I? Why am I doing this? I mean, I think that's what everyone should ask themselves: uh, Why am I doing this? And what is the message, especially if you're a politician, that I hope to convey? There are various reasons to do interviews. And why did he do that? So the why did he do that question is, of course, the 
continuing recurring question of the Trump administration, because sometimes it is not so clear. Because in a normal White House, yes, you would have a communications and messaging strategy. And you would know that you wanted this, I don't know what week this is, it's not um, infrastructure week, and it's not energy week, it must be something week. Um, It's not fire your attorney general week, as far as I know. so you would have a message. It's make it a make yeah. America. Oh, uh, make, make oh yeah, get in the fire truck week. Yeah. Okay, so you would have a strategy, communication strategy that would be built around that. And if you were prepared, you were going to have an interview. You would be preparing for the interview and say, okay, and this is what you really want to hit. And maybe there'd be a question that would come at you from out of left field, and you'd make some news that you weren't intending to make. But at least you'd have kind of a game plan going into it. This White House has been just the improv White House. It's let's put on a show. So so with this interview, I think there's one of two possibilities. The president said, hey, let's." he has this thing with the New York Times, Maggie Haberman. Let's like bring him in and talk to them. And he, then he just pops off and he hasn't thought it through. Certainly, it doesn't seem that the communications staff knew this was coming. Or else another possibility is... They've clearly let out with Attorney General Sessions for months now that the president, um, he hasn't said it directly, but they've let it be very clear to Attorney General Sessions sending the message, we're not happy that you recused yourself. Maybe he decided that it was time to get this message out. I, It was so full force that I'm kind of inclined to the, this one had a strategy behind it. Um, but what, if you wanted... <laughs> to get rid of your attorney general, why wouldn't you call him in and say, you know, it just hadn't worked out, and uh, why don't you resign? I mean, this, you know, he oddly enough, this president doesn't seem to enjoy confronting people. He seems to be oddly reticent about saying those words. You're fired. He likes to. Uh, either send messengers to get people to do it. There's this really gripping story about how it was left to Donald Trump Jr. to tell Paul Manafort that he was out, and he likes to send messages through Twitter and through um, the media. But it beats, you know, getting inside the mind beats me. I I I, I just can't. Uh, it's inexplicable to me, and it, it raises questions. To me, I mean, a couple of questions. The first one is, and let's preface this, I do not hold a degree in psychiatry, but is he stable? I mean, this this almost goes beyond bad judgment. You think, you know, what what is his mindset right now? I mean, does that strike you that way? Well, I, I too, don't have that degree in psychiatry, but I would observe that— the one thing that's fascinating about this interview is uh, the president talks about the terrible conflicts of interest that Jim Comey and Bob Mueller, he says, have. So he's exquisitely sensitive to appearances and conflicts when it might be something that would cause harm to him. And so he's very sensitive to those. But he completely uh, is oblivious to the notion that 
Of course, the attorney general who was at the head of your campaign, one of your senior advisors and your first uh, Senate endorser, can't oversee this investigation. And of course, if you look at the Justice Department guidelines, you're going to need to have a special counsel. That's why we have these special counsel regulations, is for precisely situations like this. So his inability to see the world except through the prism of his own self-interest is constantly fascinating. I think the other thing that's psychologically fascinating to me, and it's related to this, is he has told us numerous times that he is a counterpuncher. And when he is attacked, it's not that he chooses to, it's that he does. He has a compulsion to strike back. So for example, last March uh, during the campaign, he came in to give us an editorial board interview. And It was left to me to ask the hard questions, which were, so why did you raise that stuff about the size of your hands? And why did you talk about it in a debate? And he said, this is almost an exact quote, well, I had to. And I said, well, well, you didn't have to. You chose to. He said, well, but he attacked me. And that is the way I think he sees the world. When someone attacks you, you must push back. You almost can't restrain yourself from pushing back. So I think that's things that we see here. He sees the attorney general as having done something disloyal, and he can't control his anger about that. The other question that that keeps coming back to me, and, and it came back again last night when I started to read that interview, is I have no evidence to suggest that he's done anything illegal or immoral are wrong, but he acts like someone who has a lot to cover. There's something going on here. There's something he doesn't want us to know about. Uh, he acts like someone who's done something wrong, and every action uh, suggests that. Um, it does, and the more information comes out, the more you incline in that direction, even those of us who are not, I put you in this category, not kind of natural conspiracy theorists. Uh, At the same time, and I go back to this psychobabble that we were doing, uh, he, the notion that his presidency might be illegitimate, that his election might be tainted by the fact of Russian intervention, I think is so damaging to his sense of self that maybe that will turn out to be alone the explanation for this bizarre refusal to accept the reality that the intelligence community has told us that Vladimir Putin uh, directed this Russian effort to meddle in the election. He can't, he seems actually incapable of accepting that. So I maybe it's a mix of psychic and psychic issues and something really going on there. Some I hope someday we'll know. But it here he has taken on the intelligence communities, the law enforcement community, and his own Justice Department. I can never, ever recall a president who found himself in that position six months into his presidency. Well, I guess, uh, no. Uh, the closest we have, the closest analogy we have is Richard Nixon, uh, Elliot Richardson, William Ruckelshaus, and the firing of Watergate special prosecutor Archibald Cox. And boy, the more I listen to 
the president because he raised the question about Mueller, and you'll hear more about conflict of interest. Um, you heard it from his lawyer, Jay Sekulow, over the weekend. This Mueller, you know, it's an it kind of inappropriate, invalid appointment because it was engineered by Comey. I'm just hearing a lot of hoofbeats of trouble coming there. Uh, yes. And, and you know what's another kind of interesting thing? And, and you're probably not old enough to remember this. Thank but you, Bob. I uh, I can. And, and you know, I'm, I go back to the Cold War and to communist dupes and Hollywood blacklists and the House on american Activities Committee. And suddenly, it's all that's flipped upside down. Uh, now you have the Trump people who are her. I mean, I've never thought that uh, Donald Trump Jr. or Jared Kushner were saboteurs or anything like that. I don't think they are. But the fact that they would allow themselves to be manipulated, I mean, they're being played and they're dealing with trained espionage agents and trained intelligence agents. And my sense is that, for want of a better word, uh, they are so naive that they don't really understand what they've gotten themselves involved in here. And just to add to that, in the people without experience may make bad, naive judgments in the heat of a campaign. I think one of the things that upset me the most last week um, and I wrote about the notion that we're having this kind of outrage. We're under outraged. We're having so many troubling things are happening that we're kind of suffering from outrage overload. One of the things that I thought we did not respond to with enough outrage was the president's statement that first it was many, now it's most people would take this meeting. Boy, you know, you could imagine, I understand, I am the biggest, um, fiercest mama grizzly around when it comes to criticizing my kids, so I understand that instinct, but boy, a president of the United States looks at an email that says, the Russian government wants to help your campaign, and so we are going to have this meeting, and your son says, bring it on, and your response as president of the United States is, most people would have had this meeting. That is not okay. I'm going to just come right out and say, I don't find it to be patriotic. And that's a terrible thing to say about a president. And I would add to that, it is not normal. It is not what also people that. Yes. Uh, would do. I mean, I've been a reporter for a long, long time. And if somebody had called me up on the phone and said, hey, I've just been talking to the Russian government. They're really for you. We, we really want to help you. We got some dirt on Hillary Clinton. When can we get together? You know what my response would have been? I'm being set up here. I would have been, I mean, I would have taken three steps back because, and you know why I would have felt that way? Because people have tried to set sure. me up. As, as you and I both know, these things happen. You, you would have, you would, you know, you would have blanched. I mean, I would have. And, and the idea that, that, that your response would be, oh, uh, let me call him on my cell phone. Who would call on the cell phone about something that sensitive and knowing that, that do they not understand that uh, that U.S. intelligence and world intelligence monitors everything that we can we can monitor uh, in countries that we consider I, I, uh, to be our adversaries? I totally agree. But my question is, why can't we say, uh, you know, Donald Trump Jr. himself had at least the decency to say, in hindsight, I would have done it differently. The president doesn't seem to be able to say. He, really, he should have done it differently. 
that seems to me to be the minimum that you should be able to say. So where do you think all this goes? What happens now? Well, where it should go is for special counsel Mueller to do his job. It is going to take, in my view, a very long time to get that fully done. It's going to require an understanding of the Trump organization's finances, for example. Um, It's going to involve a lot of interviews with a lot of people, some of whom um, may not be immediately available because they're living in other jurisdictions. And it's going to require a lot of patience on that. Meanwhile, I think it's really important to continue to understand that Mueller has one job. And we've had a lot of conversation because of the Comey um, press conference and letter uh, about the importance of criminal prosecutors sticking to their brief, which is to decide whether or not there's enough information and evidence to bring criminal prosecution, which is why we simultaneously need to also have these congressional investigations, because even if there's not a crime here, we need to understand what happened. My fear is, um, as I suggested before, that something is going to happen to short circuit the Mueller inquiry. Uh, One of two things, either they could both happen. Either he will be fired or the president will use his very broad pardon power to pardon a whole bunch of people, possibly including himself, and say, okay, um, okay, I need to pardon these people because the Russia investigation is interfering with my ability to make America great again. Um, and it's a drain on the presidency. So I'm pardoning everybody. So there's no longer anything to investigate. Thank you very much for your service, Mr. Mueller. Um, everybody, let's proceed. I think that should create a firestorm in Congress if that happens. But I am not certain where things go if that occurs. And I think that's a very big worry of mine. Would there be a move at that point to impeach him? Well, um, there would be a move. The question is whether there would be enough people, I mean, if and when this happens, and I'm imagining sort of the darkest possibilities here, does that finally get Republicans in Congress to get moving? One would hope so if something that extreme were to happen. But I have to say that the very muted reaction to these very disturbing emails has raised serious questions about whether that would happen. I I think we're a long way at this point from impeachment. Ruth Marcus, uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Uh, Bob. You and The Washington Post are making all of us proud to be a part of journalism. Thank uh, you. We thank you for that. Andrew Schwartz was not with us today, but this is Bob Schieffer with Ruth Marcus. Thanks for listening. Is it a physical attraction? Is it sexual satisfaction? Is it long life together? Oh, going through all kinds of weather. Is it holding each other's hands? Making all kinds of plans? Never, never saying goodbye. Never, never making each other cry. Love is all the above. That's what love is. Love is everything. 
That's what love is. 